welcome back to this surprise episode of the Silmarillion Film Project. I'm your co-host Dave Kale, uh, broadcasting to you live on June 7th, unbeknownst to most of the listening public, apparently. Uh, apologies for a snafu. We we announced that we were rescheduling, but then uh, forgot to update the GoToWebinar link, and hence um, uh, we have deprived ourselves of our wonderful many of our usual regular exactly whom we neglected for to remind that it... for the podcast listeners like what's the prize episode exactly what's right yeah, yeah yeah it's the next episode or, in line what's what's surprising about that or if you're prone to if you're prone to conspiracy theories then what you think is that we've done this to um to eliminate um any dissent from the decisions <laughs> that's right gonna that's right yeah, we're gonna make super to controversial do. decisions today so we needed to make sure no one was here to contradict us yeah that's it that's right yeah. Um, if you're if you're listening carefully, you probably hear that I'm joined as always by my other co-hosts, Corey Olson, the Tolkien professor, and Trish Lambert, the Tolkien maven. And in case and you get our... Corey and I mixed up, I'm Trish. <laughs> Important distinction to make. Yes. Yeah. So. So here we are, along with are. not too many other people. Not too many other people. Yeah, it's like this is the pressures on us. Great. Well, we have we do have folks on Twitch too, and actually the Twitch okay. uh, broadcast going live will send the notification out to a couple thousand oh, people, oh, so that will help to remind folks as well. Anyway, so very good. Uh, so today's episode is I, so I have decided I absolutely love the new way that we're doing our seasons, where we're interspersing these creative sessions, uh, the creative content direction sessions in between our episode plot discussion se- uh, uh, sessions. Um, what I love about this is like the total license for digression. These are like our digression episodes. Um, but no, seriously, like the, 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 the creative challenges, like the creative and artistic challenges and, you know, uh, I, you know, interpretation challenges of, uh, you know, thinking about these particular worldview questions, which are going to be relevant, you know, to the stuff that we're talking about. And that's going to, what's going to happen in the, in the different episodes. I think this is, uh, uh, this 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 stuff is super cool, and I really enjoy uh, talking through it. We're gonna. Our goal today is we have we have a couple questions that we're gonna discuss. Sort of some uh, some very specific issues that arise in this season that we need to think our way through a little bit. And then uh, we're gonna talk about casting. We're gonna go through some of the characters that have not yet been cast, and we're gonna talk about their characters what we would look for right if we were if we were actually putting out a casting call for actors and actresses what would we want to see uh in uh uh in these you know for for those characters so that is that is uh that is the plan for today but first a couple of announcements and we have uh uh one really big one uh, which is uh, uh, related to some film itself, and that, and, uh, and those of you who are on the discussion forums will already have heard this. Um, but we have uh, a time change for those of you who listen to the show, who tune in with us live. We have a major change. Uh, we are shifting it uh, twelve hours backwards uh, because we have to make a, a, a major change. Trish is not available. Um, anymore in the mornings, and it's actually something that's going to work out better, I think, for all of us. Dave will no longer be broadcasting at the crack of dawn out in California, um, uh, and in some ways it'll be easier on me, too. So uh, anyway, we we decided that the change had to be made, um, so we're instead of 
broadcasting anymore on Fridays at 10 a.m. We'll be broadcasting on Thursdays at 10 p.m. Eastern Time. Um, I know that the number one negative impact of this, which I deeply regret, is the fact that um, our Europeans who uh, often join us for uh, uh, for some film live are not going to be able to. Or I mean, well, I won't say aren't going to be able to. They're perfectly welcome to join us at like three o'clock in the morning. But I know that that's not the optimal time for a broadcast uh, over on the other side of the ocean. And I apologize for that. I wish it uh, uh, I wish it were possible uh, to do it at a different and more Europe-friendly time. It's one of the things which has been such a struggle for me, actually, for many years. I mean, ever since I've started to do any kind of live things. Um, the, the, since the first time I've tried to do live stuff from, from my podcast, one of the biggest difficulties has always been trying to, uh, you know, meet at times when we could... Uh, uh, when we could... Uh, uh, connect with folks in Europe. It's very difficult. It's very challenging because, of course, evening time is best for most of the Americans uh, and uh, and for my personal schedule. And not only evening time, but late evening time. In fact, Halstein, that is possibly a uh, an upside, right? That it's so late in the evening time that it's almost early morning uh, in Europe. Uh, those who are uh, past the UK. So those of uh, you know, those of you who are out in uh, like you know Germany, Sweden, uh, places like that, yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be four a.m. Right? So just get up a little early <laughs> and you'll be able to make it. It. it, it but anyway, I, as I say, I, I you know, joking aside, I know it's difficult, and I'm really sorry uh, to make a move which is going to de facto exclude some of our regulars, and and that was a that was a really hard decision to make, but. But it had to happen. That was the thing that we had to do, and so we're sorry about that, but that's what it is. And hopefully, you know, there will be some people who couldn't make it before who will be able to uh, uh, to make it before. So, um, anyway, so that's, um, uh, that's, that's uh, where we are. So this is going to – so the schedule – uh, and we're kind of having a monkey with a schedule anyway because of Mythmoot coming up and everything. So – our next session after today is going to be two weeks from today on the 20th of June. Uh, so June, Thursday, June 20th at 10 p.m. Eastern Time will be our next meeting. And then we'll do our next one three weeks after that. We'll get back on our regular two-week schedule uh, because we'll be skipping over the week of Mythmoot and then the week of the 4th of July here in America. Uh, Thursday night is the night of the 4th of July itself. So um, we will be... Uh, again, on the 11th will be our next meeting, the 11th of July. So June 20th and then July 11th, and, and then we're back to our normal two-week, uh, uh, to our two-week function. So, all right. Anyway. So Hawkon is promising remain... occasional surprise uh, appearances. So occasional awesome, surprise Hawk appearances. <laughs> okay. That's good. That's good. Now, hey, I, like, admire morning people. Like, the idea of waking up at 4 o'clock for something is I can't even conceive of it. I could stay up until 4 o'clock, but I couldn't, I couldn't wake up at 4 o'clock. <laughs> I was going to say, that's like a bedtime for you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And actually, it often happens. It often happens that, like, right before I go to bed, the Europeans who work at Signum get up. And so, like, I'm, ta- you know, I'm chatting with them, and, and I'm like, it must be late if I'm already chatting with the with the Europeans. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but anyway, 
<laughs> All right. Um, so the other announcement, of course, is Mythmoot. Um, we had uh, the, I, we prevailed upon our venue to give us an extra week to uh, uh, give them our final numbers. Uh, so that means we were able to extend the registration uh, uh, deadline for Mythmoot up through this coming Thursday. So next Thursday, the 13th. Um, of June uh, is the new deadline. Uh, so, and that's it for uh, for live registration. So if you want to come and join us, if you're going to be able to come join us even just for a day, um, I encourage you to do that. It's going to be wonderful. Trish and I will both be there this year. Dave can't be there, but, um, uh, but Trish and I will both be there. And I think uh, uh, Nick and Marie will both be there as well. They usually they usually both are able to make it too, which is which is fun. Anyway, so let me ask you this, Corey. Yeah. How old do you think Wally needs to be before in order to to have reached the point where he might appreciate it? Well, <laughs> I mean, two and a half, I'm pretty sure. Two and a half is, is, is a little low, I, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, my family was there last year. Actually, my kids didn't attend the whole time. My, my, uh, uh, my wife and kids were sort of around, but they were kind of doing other stuff around DC, the DC area most of the time. Um, but, um, you know, I, I, it's one thing that it's like a frontier we've never really explored yet at Mythmoot. Um, which I would be interested to do, actually. I'd be interested to expand to some, like, more uh, child-oriented programming. I think that would be really cool. But um, we have never done that. So, yeah, uh, our youngest attendees have been teenagers, basically, to this point. So, yeah, I think we always probably got a little bit of time to go, Dave. All right before he will really enjoy it. You know, he'd probably endure it, uh, but, uh, uh, but he'd probably make your wife miserable. We'll we'll take it year by year. Yeah, exactly. Year by year. Anyway. So yeah. So Mythmoot deadline extension until the 13th of June, but don't forget, of course, Mootcast is open and will be open right up uh, until in fact, through the event through Sunday, the 30th, you can sign up for Mootcast and everyone who comes even for a single day gets the full Mootcast and the archived recordings of of all the sessions and everything that, that comes with registration. Um, So, all right. Yeah. So there's, uh, so there's that. And was there anything else I was meant to announce? I don't think so. I think that's it. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, that and the t- the time change. Great, great. All right. Um, our first issue today: Magic Swords. Okay, so. We're yes. going to be reforging Ringill in the first episode of the season when we had the breaking of uh, uh, Fingolfin's sword, and we're going to be reforging it uh, 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 here. Um, it says we will also have Telkar forge Narsil later on in the season. How do we want to depict these scenes? Uh, is the making of magic swords solely smithcraft with a forge and fire, or is there some singing involved? Is it private and secretive, or something you can do in front of others? How does the smith's intent shape the blade? Ale's black swords are a negative example, but there are positive examples as well. How do we show this? And what, if anything, is special about swords forged by Noldor or dwarves? Okay, so great questions. Um, one thing that is, I think, 
pretty clear from the way that swords are described, magic swords are described in Tolkien, is that there clearly is. Um, we were talking about this and exploring the Lord of the Rings quite a bit when we were uh, in the uh, Barrow Downs and thinking about the Barrow Swords and looking at you know Frodo's sword uh, flashing with red fire and stuff uh, when he is has the ring on facing the the Nazgul at Weathertop and stuff. Um, you know, so what is it about these swords? What, what what is a magic sword in Tolkien exactly? And it seems to me that um, it's the Barrow swords in the Lord of the Rings. I think make it clearer than anywhere else. Um, you know, it, they are wound about for the for 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 uh, uh, with spells um, for the downfall of Angmar. The will and intent of the. Uh, of the and of course we get a glimpse into this in the Return of the King, right when Mary's sword is destroyed, and we are and the narrator tells us that happy would he have been who forged it long ago, right to know what its destiny had been, um, that um, that those who make these swords invest it with some of their own will, right? You know the the will of the smith is somehow conveyed into the sword, has something to do with the sword. So like the, 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 the dude who made the, you know, those swords that or those daggers or whatever they were, those blades, uh, let us say more, uh, more generically, uh, that were put into the, that were, that were taken out of the barrow by Tom Bombadil and distributed to the hobbits. Um, he was specifically focused on fighting against the Witch King and against Angmar. Uh, and so therefore that will, that power was in the swords. There is clearly something like there are spells, right? That, 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 that word is used, right? Um, so that's, um, that suggests words, right? That there should be words involved, either words carved and this, of course, is also very common, um, that there are runes, right? M- remember that uh, um, that's what Aragorn and Glorfindel are looking for on the hilt and blade of the well, blade before it melts, right? Of the da- of the knife that stabbed Frodo. Um, Glorfindel says there are evil things written on this hilt. Um, and I don't ass- I, mean, I assume that just doesn't mean like just like, you know, rude words and stuff like that. Like the, the evil things written on the hilt, uh, are not just casual insults in the black speech or whatever, but, but, uh, but, but obviously evil runes, evil spells, uh, that, um, uh, that empowered that blade, um, or even possibly created that blade. I'm not even sure it was actually a metal blade myself, but, um, uh, but anyway, the, the, the Witch King's weapon that stabbed Frodo. But that's neither here nor there. Uh, the point is, um, so, yeah, uh, I, words are involved, spells are involved, the will of the smith is definitely involved. So how do we want to depict these scenes with the elves and with the dwarves? Is there going to be a difference between how elves and dwarves do it? Um, and let me let me say that, that, that the, the one part that of this seems that like seems... That, sorry, yeah. that seems like that should go without saying. Like, I think we definitely want them to be different somehow. Yeah, yeah we definitely do want them to be different somehow, I think. They would be... Um, 
Yeah. Yeah, dwarves would um, uh, do it secretly. Um, There's a t-shirt um, for you. Dwarves, dwarves do, it, do it secretly. Dwarves do it secretly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes, it's a dog toy. Sorry, guys. I, I have myself on mute, but when I want to talk, then I've got this background of squeaky toy. Sorry. Yeah. I'm yeah. going to get a nasty for the post-production team. Yeah. Yeah, just uh, edit that up. Um, <laughs> anyway, yeah, so... I would think that the dwarf, if, if if there's, remember that one of the things that I was talking about before was uh, when we were talking about dwarf culture previously, was I was a little bit resistant to the idea that dwarves are completely secretive about their forging, like that I kind of like to think that there's a, a more active, um, uh, uh, a more active like mentor thing, like you know, that dwarves who would like to teach what they know to those who come after them. Um, uh-huh. They might not want to share it outside the family. Right. But... What I, was say. Yeah. I don't know that it's secret among themselves, but exactly. it certainly would be secret. Other. I got a question. Yeah. I'm going to ask this now. Maybe we need to just wait for it later, but I, I'm going to ask it. So I was thinking, actually, when I thought about magic swords, I was thinking about the Hobbit and the mm-hmm. troll cave. You know? yes. And and this whole bit about the blades turning blue in the presence of orcs, I would think that would be almost like an assembly line in Champion of Swords at this time <laughs> because of the fact that that's why you would make it, right? Because you want to know if orcs are nearby at this time with Morgoth and fighting. And I mean, I would almost think that's kind of like... We need a hundred, you know, orc swords. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? I mean, I could see like a whole, like a forged line of these guys chanting, you know, over their sword. I mean, to me at this time, those kind of swords would not be rare. No. It seems like they would be common. Yes. That type of sword. Now there would be other magic swords that would have other things, but. Yeah, um, that's a good point. I, I don't, I, that is a good point. It, it, it seems like, it seems like artisanal enchanted swords wouldn't be practical. <laughs> right. Well, <laughs> yeah. Artisanal swords. <laughs> right. I mean, so I'm thinking, well, one question that I would have, is there such a thing as a sword made by the Noldor, which hobbits, for instance, would not consider a magical sword? Like, can they even make non-magical swords? Is that possible? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I'm not sure they well, can. Maybe, like... No, just their yeah. normal, just an old or normal sword, right? Yeah, that's yeah. what it means. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's true. That that's certainly consistent with with the fact that basically everything elves do is perceived as magical. Right. True. And the blue thing, turning blue with orcs, would just be sort of the baseline. That's like just an everyday sword would do that <laughs> yeah. for the noble, you know. And then everything else above, like yeah, like Tony's kind of saying, royalty, nobility, specific. Uh, warriors would get like a you know upgraded type sword right and and i mean certainly there would be like swords of particular power right someone something that someone took much care over or maybe even you know this gets back to a, a discussion again we were having in exploring the lord of the rings as sooner or later we will have all of the discussions in exploring the lord of the rings um but one of the it's questions I, it is one of the questions that um, came up lately was what exactly is the difference between good guy magic and bad guy magic? Like, can we generalize about that? What are the trends that we can see uh, differences in how like Sauron operates and how 
uh, Gandalf operates, for instance. Yeah. And one of the things that we were pointing to is, of, and this is very visible in the Silmarillion in particular, is that there is this the obvious trend of the bad guys to put them to distribute themselves, right? To dominate others by pouring part of themselves into those others, right? In order to build their to 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 build their power through these other things which they control and kind of make into extensions of themselves, right? And that does seem to me to be an intrinsically dubious um an intrinsic, an intrinsically dubious undertaking. And by the way, uh, as a little spoiler, because it's relevant to this quest, is not spoiler exactly, uh, but because uh, it's relevant to this season and this question, that's my answer to why on Glockhell talks. By the way, is that Aeol puts himself like Aeol does to his swords, not quite what Sauron does with the Ring of Power, but it's in the category, right? It's it's not it's not not nearly as much, not not as extreme. But he puts so much of himself into his swords that his own, like part of his own dark will, his own dark spirit is in there, and that's why they're. That's why it's sentient. That's why it can talk because it has the will, uh, more of the will of, um, um, of, of which is which of, is of course of the, of ale. which is of course ironic because ale's not exactly a notorious chatty talker. Notorious <laughs> right, yeah. It, 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 it's not chatty, right? It doesn't talk often. It only talks the way. Actually, may have made it so that it would keep him company, you know? They could have conversations. <laughs> I can't imagine. <laughs> in the <Asians>. yeah. <laughs> I'm kind of lonely. I'm going to make, I'm, I'm going to make, a, I'm going to make, a, I, I'm, I'm not going to make like a, a robot companion because that would just be creepy. No, I'm going to make a sword that can talk to me because that's better. Um, yeah. Yeah. Now I do think named swords. So this, you know, these blue, this baseline. And by the way, don't remember, don't forget the sting was actually a dagger. So we have, you know, basically weapons, weaponry, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, those would not be named, but there would be named swords. And I would think the named swords. I think, like Tony was saying, you know, you glamdering is certainly not going to be your, you know, standard sword. It's going to be have something special about it. So, named swords to me would be maybe the distinction. Yeah. 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 No, I I mean, that certainly would be one of the things that would be a marker of that kind of things. So, yeah. So and as you can see, what I'm coming back around to is what then is it that elves are doing right when they make a sword and, and it has power in that? So where does the power come from? And I don't want to get too literal about this, like as if we're picturing it has to be right. charged up from a battery or something like that. But but there has to be some mechanism Right. Of the power that is in the blades. Um, uh, 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 Marie was just saying that, you know, um, elves who are aware of the whole domination of will thing uh, take great pains not to influence others wills. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and uh, Marie is connecting that to the uh, go not to the elves for advice, for they will tell you both both no and yes. Right. Um they don't even want to. They don't even want to uh, uh, sort of influence things that way. And I agree that that sort of that works for me. But it's so. But a sword, right? So, Fingolfin forging Ringil. He would. There is a sense in which he would put something of himself into it, right? Like his own cold determination to oppose Morgoth would be sort of infused into the sword, but it wouldn't lessen him, 
right? Right. In the way that because he's not distributing himself. Well, the difference like, there I'm, is I'm domination. Trying to establish the qualitative. The difference, difference. is the dominate. You know, like the bad yeah. guys are like domination is their thing. So I could see right. that that would take something out of themselves. Whereas I don't see that with the elves. That's because right. to your point or to Marie's point, that's not what they'd be infusing their weaponry with. Um, yeah, no? yeah, no, exactly. That, that I, I think that, that, that makes sense that like where, where the diminishment of Morgoth and Sauron comes in, um, is not in the making of things, right? It's not the R and D, you know, that, that, right. that diminishes them. It's the, them putting enough of their will in other, in others to enslave them, right? It's the mm-hmm. enslavement of others that, how much juice you've got to put in in order to override the system, right? And and dominate them. Um, and I don't want to make it sound like it's just quantitative. It's clearly a qualitative difference. Like it's 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 what you're attempting to do. Um, but if you're if if what you're doing with your will with is not just making something, because I would think, I mean, elves are made to make things, right? I mean, like that's that's kind of their bag, right? So. There's no way that the making of beautiful things, even of beautiful, marvelous, and magical things, would diminish an elf. It would, in, it would increase, like, surely an elvish smith who has made many wonderful and beautiful things over his life would be enriched by that, not impoverished by that, right? An elvish smith, you know, after 100,000 years of wonderful creative work, wouldn't be empty, Right. Wouldn't be used up, wouldn't be tapped out. It'd be the other way around. Right. He'd be enriched by that. Surely. Um, I would think. Um, Sounds like this will be very straightforward to portray on screen. Very straightforward. Well, I mean, we can get around to a straightforward portrayal. I'm not too worried about that. But um, uh but yeah, so okay. Um, I was wondering, quick question. Um, that that line uh, about the the Morgul blade, you yeah. know, evil things written on it. Yeah. I always wondered, was that was that meant to be literal, like, well, like here, here's the inscription right here, or or sort of more metaphorical in the sense that, like, I, you know, like is is what they're detecting the will of the maker. Right. Like that has the evil intent. written all over it. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> right. Right. I, right. I, which, I always, which, you know, in Tolkien, in Tolkien is still a substantive thing. It's sure. not, it's not like, you know, um, sure. but I always wondered like, did, is he actually looking at a physical inscription or is he sort of detecting sort of the evil intent of the maker? I, I, I mean, both, I think, but, I always understood that to me. So Glorfindel does say that, you know, perhaps your eyes cannot, cannot see them. Right. Um, so there, it's not, a, it's, it's not like it's just a, like an inscription literally carved into the hilt. Etched of the knife. Into it, yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, but something you know, in between sounds like, yeah, I would think it's, it's probably is something that is, uh, like he can see something like runes, uh, is what I've always imagined from that. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if it has to be literal. I've always thought of it as, as like, he's actually seeing runes, which are 
which are there but which are not carved so they can't see it but he can right. perceive that they're that they're present that that seems that feels right yeah it it, it, like it does that. it seems especially since we know that like runes on swords runes on weapons are a thing right i mean we know that yeah. that's a, that's a that is a a standard approach so you know invisible runes on a knife with a vanishing blade seems you know like that would be the tool for the job right um yep but um anyway yeah so um okay so if it's true then that the power that elves put forth in the making of things and by the way it's not just weaponry obviously that would be wonderful and magical right um that elves would make um and we need to this is a thing that we need to remember in general right elves make not only beautiful things but wondrous things um you know so what glamdring is to a normal sword you know an elvish you know whatever an elvish chair should be to a regular chair, right? If you see what I mean by that, I mean I'm not saying it should glow mm-hmm. blue in the presence of orcs. What I'm saying is, is that it's, it should be marvelous uh, to a similar extent as Glamdring. Now it's possible, as we said before, named swords like Glamdring and Orcrist perhaps were above and beyond, right? Um, mm-hmm. Were a great work of a great craftsman. Uh, and so, therefore, not something that is, you know, duplicable in any uh, sword made by the Noldor. Um, but, um, uh, but anyway, yeah, I, I, um, I would think that the vast majority of their works of hand would be magical. Yeah, as Marie says, we have the we have the the rope, right? The elvish rope. We have the elvish cloaks. I mean. Um, it is in fact true that most of the things that we and the boats, right? The boats, the cloaks, and the rope. We have three examples in the Fellowship of the Ring of just non-weapon stuff uh, that is made by the elves, which is which hobbits would call magical, right? So yep. it's it's just it's it's a thing that is worth keeping in mind, right? Um, worth keeping in mind because uh, this is something that we um, could yet yeah, uh, 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 Tony yeah the Miravor to other drinks um, uh, Lembus you know compared to the honey cakes of the Bjornings yeah absolutely I mean we see all of this um, all of this stuff right um, yeah Hakan that's a really wonderful way to think about um, to think about this Um you know, he talks about elvish, elvish craftsmanship being in, being allowed by Eru, or I would go even further than that, Hakan, and say being part of Eru's creation plan. Remember, Eru was a delegator from day one, right? It was through the song of the Ainur that he that he, you know, uh, uh, designed the world, right? That he caused the world to be, um, or at least he caused the world to be by saying Ea. Right. But he made it to be as they shaped it. Right. They were to, you know, pun semi intended. They were instrumental in the forming of Ea. Um, Nice. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, 
you know, they are all weak. And there's every and there's every reason to think that the elves and men are part of that as well, right? Part of that shaping of Arda, um, according to the creation plan of Iluvatar. So yes, he he not only permits um, the craftsmanship of elves; it's it's part of the plan, right? He brings forth the elves in part so that they can, through their own subcreation, enrich Arda. That's like their job. Um, uh, so, whereas, yes, yeah, so anyway, to continue Hakan's uh, point, uh, Sauron's creations, Morgoth's creations, right? The things that he does are contaminating Eru's creation. Yes, that's a, Morgoth is trying to hijack Arda, right? He's not trying to augment Arda. He's not doing his bit uh, to, uh, uh, to bring about the enrichment of Arda. He's trying to hijack it and, and control it and shape it into something uh, which just serves him and his own plans and his own desires, just as he tried to hijack the music with his um, clamorous unison, right? As of many trumpets braying on a single note. Um, that's in the same way he's trying to not enrich, but whitewash creation and uh, bring it under his own single will and make it over again, like in his own image and uh, under his own command. Um, so yes, I agree. That's, that's, that, that's a really important way to be thinking about this whole phenomenon. And so therefore, when we're thinking about elvish craftsmanship in general and thinking about weapons in particular, we need to be thinking about that kind of, that kind of art. Now, um, Marie, I think it was you who suggested that, um, uh, that, we will we should have some exceptions to this right we should have some moments where like some of the elves cross the line and the kind of work craftsmanship that they do um is questionable right and the two most obvious examples of that marie which i think you cited before of course aeol and possibly even feanor to some extent i'm a little leery about feanor i certainly would not want to make the silmarils themselves an example of this um this is one of my uh I have been a I've been a defender of the Silmarils for a long time in the sense that I think the Silmarils get a bad rap. Um I don't think that the Sil it's not the Silmarils' fault. The Silmarils are not evil, right? The Silmarils don't cause destruction. Um like don't hate them because they're beautiful, right? They like they are so beautiful that they you know, they create desire. The problem is that folks don't know how to handle their desire, right? They're the problem. It's not, um, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like, you know, guns don't kill people. People kill people. Well, like Silmarils don't cause wars. People who lust after Silmarils cause wars, right? Like it's, it's not the Silmarils fault. Um, uh, so anyway, um, but, um, Fanor makes plenty of other things. He does make plenty of other things. Unfortunately, the only two other examples of things that we can point to super clearly are the Palantiri and uh, the lamps. Uh, The lamps seem a little bit hard to warp in that particular way. But he also makes lots of swords. He does make weapons. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Helms and weapons. Um, armor and weapons are the other things that we know of for sure. We could invent the wonderful something. thing about a the wonderful thing about an adaptation is we can invent new things for him to make and and then show what we want. 
Now, I was going to suggest that, but I don't know if it's too late in the day for us to introduce something that is like an... And, and anyway, if we introduce something that's going to be like a whole new kind of plot line, we're going to we're going to we could run off the rails super quickly doing that. And we've already banned the Palantiri. So, um, True. Uh, yeah. But what about his children? Well, Kurafin could make some dubious stuff. It would be interesting because we actually don't have. Is there any evidence I'm trying to remember any references, and I can't think of any in the Silmar in the published Silmarillion, to Kurafin making anything. We're told that Kurafin, uh, you know, inherited the like bulk of his father's skill, but yet we're never told Kurafin makes anything. I can't remember any famous thing that Kurafin made um, that's named. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so Celebrimbor, Tony, is kind of what I was building up to there, and I agree with you and with what Ellen said before about, about the Rings of Power um, being sort of shady. Dubious. Dubious, yeah. And, of course, they're, I mean, they're, they're nothing but dubious because they're done under, you know, under the, the, the influence of Sauron. I mean, no, Sauron's hand never touched them, Um but that doesn't mean they were a good idea, right? I mean, they still, uh, uh, it's still something that Sauron suggested and for not benevolent reasons, right? So, um, so yeah, I agree. I, I think the Rings of Power are really sketchy. However, um, um, I, I do think that it would be kind of interesting. To, so on the one hand, we could have like, you know, young Celebrimbor making something or, but I think it would be sort of interesting to have Kurofin make something dubious. Um, yeah. And cause that gives us a chance to have Celebrimbor learn from it, you know, both in one way uh-huh. or, or another. Um, yeah, exactly. Mithluin. the only artifact that I could think of too, that was connected with, uh, uh, with Kurofin was Angrist, which of course he didn't make. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, anyhow, um, I don't know, I don't know that we necessarily, I mean, I don't see us, we probably shouldn't go too far outside of the plots that we've been discussing, but it's something to kind of put in the back of our heads, I think, if there's a, if there's some other dubious artifact, and we don't have to invent a random artifact, it could just be a sword, right, um, Sorry, I'm suddenly thinking of like my mind is running over the Kelgorman Kurufin plot in Baron and Luthien, and I'm thinking in particular of the bow that they shot Baron with, that they try to shoot Luthien with, right, and and ah. end up shooting Baron with. I'm I'm just like thinking of things used by Fanorians, right? I'm just like any artifact. I'm running through my head, and that's the one thing I immediately came up with there. Um, uh, but, um, that's a nice idea. Yeah. Yeah. Um, especially given the, um, uh, questionable use to which it is put later put. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, let me not to range too far afield here. Uh, back to the general question. 
Fingolfin forges Ringle. I, I would definitely want him to reforge his own sword. And is there singing involved? I think there almost has to be. I, oh, yeah, I think there would be. Yeah. I think maybe that's that could be one clear difference between how the Noldor do it and how the dwarves do it. Right. The dwarves could not could not sing. Right. They could all just be about the carving of runes and the elves could be about, you know, the singing of uh, songs of power that are then sort of woven around their blades. Um, yeah. Hakan, exactly. Fingolfin should be singing a song about the Helkaraxa while he's smithying. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Yes. Exactly. Um, yeah. Um, wait a second. I just had a complicated idea. Uh oh. Just had a complicated idea. And I'm going to blame Marie. Marie mentioned when I was brainstorming about stuff that Feanor made, she mentioned off the cuff that he would have likely made his own crown. Mm. And then I was thinking about Fingolfin wearing Feanor's crown, the crown of the High King. And then I'm thinking about Fingolfin's rashness in attacking Morgoth. And if some of the fey spirit of Theonor in the crown could have influenced that. No evidence in the text of anything of the sort, but I just I just like those that that chain of things. Like the idea of Theonor crossing over the line and putting some of his spirit in that like morally dubious way that more, you know, it's something more like what Sauron and Morgoth do. And if there's anything like that would have had to be something that he forged post death of Finway, right? Like after he had, uh, after he'd crossed the line, after he refused the Silmarils to, uh, 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 to Yavanna, right? It would have to be later on. And the crown would fit that, right? He forges his own crown after he, uh, after his father's death and his, 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 the full, the fellness of his spirit is involved in that. Um, it would have been, um, anyway, and then, of course, that and then I, I was immediately thinking, well, Fay, right? He he is his his own Fay rush to uh, towards death and in, in in attacking the Balrogs and then Fingolfin. Anyway, I, I don't know how what it, or how much or if anything we would want to make of this, um, but uh, you know, I, and I wouldn't want to make it like. Fingolfin is being possessed by the spirit of Feanor. We can't make it look like that, and we can't make it, uh, you know. So we might want to just avoid this entirely. I don't know if 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 it's something that would really work well or not. But anyway, um, uh, it just popped into my head there. So maybe we can just kind of put that on the back burner and see if we might want to do something with that. Um, Hakon, I was thinking of that too. Just like when Fingolfin attacks, right? As we show Fingolfin riding, right, towards Angband um, to challenge Morgoth, having, like, some of Feanor, like, a a version of Feanor's music playing in the background, right? Um, Like, Fingolfin's theme gets, gets, uh, gets, 
sort of corrupted by Feanor's theme, right? And the fall theme uh, as well. Um, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, something to think about as we move forward there. Um, I like this very interesting discussion. Yeah, yeah, okay. So dwarves carve runes. That's where the, the, the source of... Okay. All right, I'll hang on a second. This, though, contradicts what I was thinking before. What I was thinking before is that when it comes to secrecy, dwarves would be eager to pass on their skill at metalsmithing, right? But maybe the, um, you know, the, the, the imbuing of artifacts with power, there's something like that's really personal, right? So it's one thing to just like, make up a, a really good functional sword and the techniques for like, how do you make a good blade that stands up really well? Like that's something that they would teach freely, maybe not freely to outsiders, but certainly freely among themselves. But for dwarves to dwarvish craftsmen to basically, you know, if they're, if there's going to be, you know, runes of power or so, if, if, if there's going to be some, 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 some power invested in this thing, that's personal. Right. And that's something that 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 you don't share with others and that that no one would ask. Right. No dwarf would even think of, you know, um, prying into the secrets of another smith for, you know, what they do and how they do it. But of course, if they're carving runes, then anyone can see them. So, like, how's that secret at that point? I mean, they could be invisible runes, I suppose, um, or runes that are visible only to the you know, to the Dwarvish craftsmen themselves. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, Hakan, you're right. I do think that, uh, like a Dwarvish master craftsman who is capable of creating, you know, uh, uh, weapons of worth like that, um, would probably take a single apprentice, right? There would be like one single master-student relationship where they would pass on how they do what they do, right? Um, though it's still like the the student would still probably not be able to just emulate exactly what their master did. Like they would have to find their own. Like I mean, I would think to the dwarves it would be something about like you know you have to. Um, it's like about your own relationship with the metal, right? Like you have to have, it's like, it has to be the relationship between you and the sword. So it's going to be different for every person. It's going to be different even in a sense for every weapon. Um, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's, um, yeah. Tony's saying, what if the runes are not carved, but spoken? Yes, I could see that so that there could be a spoken word element to kind of a, 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 a chanting McLuhan, as you suggest. Yeah. Um, Ah, Ithildeen, visible only in moonlight or starlight. Yeah, something like that. Um, we do have, of course, that we know that the dwarves really like that, right? Uh, even if uh, they weren't the ones who invented it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, I could, I could see that. I could see that, right? So that, I mean... The difference between song and chant seems a kind of a subtle one to, to establish the difference between uh, elvish craftsmanship and dwarvish craftsmanship. But I think the sound of that could be um, could be very um, uh, could be very 
different. Um, you know, the, the effect of it, certainly the effect of it on screen would be very different. So when we saw uh, Fingolfin forging Narsil and we saw Telkar forging, oh wait, sorry, I said it wrong. Fingolfin forging Ringil and Telkar forging Narsil, um, it would be, it, it would look and sound very different. Um, and Eol forging Unglachel. And I would think that if, um, if, Ale's forging of his swords are sketchy, and even sketchy in the ways that we were talking about, more like the work of Melkor and Sauron than other elvish craftsmanship, um, where he's not just putting the thought of the things that he loves, right? Which is, again, what we get from the elves of Lothlorien, right? When we're talking about the cloaks, Um we put the thought of all that we love into all that we make, they say. And that seems to me like a general kind of rule of thumb when you're talking about elvish craftsmanship, right? Um, Ringil would be a sort of power because he would be putting into it not just like stuff that he loved, not just stuff that he liked, right? He would be putting into it the memory of the crossing of the Helkaraxa, right? The memory of the suffering of his people, um, uh the memory of his own, uh, you know, his own desire to, you know, atone for the wrong that he has done and to, uh, you know, to, to lead his people in the right direction. Um, again, I'm thinking about the, the circumstance in which he broke the sword in the first place. Um, I mean, all of those things would be for Fingolfin wrapped up in the, in the forging of Ringel, the forging of this weapon uh, against their enemy. Uh, for the good which he hopes to do. Um, yeah, th- exactly, Hakan, the love of his people and those who are lost, absolutely. Um, all of those things would be put there. So there would be, th- it's one of the things that would make Ringo really powerful um, and different in its nature, different in its quality. Um, fr- and I mean quality in, in like the kind of thing it is, not the um, how good it is. Um, it would be it would be magic of a different quality than say the magic in the elven cloaks that um, uh, that the fellowship has um, because it's 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 not it's not made in the same kind of spirit. Um, yeah, and Tony, I certainly agree. Um, things like the Morgul blades and things are imbued with all the with their own hatred and their own fear uh uh and their own despair absolutely yeah um yeah yeah good um okay so I think we're pretty good on this. Does that does that help? I think that clarifies things. I think yeah. so too. And actually, we could segue from this because it's kind of the same topic to the prosthetic. Exactly right. Um, so this yeah this does lead directly into this other question, which is a really fascinating little question. Um, it's a, sort of a minor thing, but to me, it actually opens a really big issue actually okay so so the the question is most fan art depicts mithros post thangorodrum with a stump uh would we want to show a prosthesis of some kind um they're certainly the nolder certainly clever enough to make something functional for him 
Uh, assistance with keeping a shield on his arm in battle would be useful, practically essential, and could be worn only when he's in full armor. Not all prosthetic limbs have to look like a pirate's hook or a robot hand. Uh, exactly. Well, here's the here's the larger question that this issue opened for me, and I, I'm not avoiding talking about the hand. Uh, we'll get back to it. Um, but here's what I'm here's here's my question: What is the Noldor relationship with technology in general? And because here's the uh, sort of additional follow up question: A lot of people, a lot of us, I will say us, I will include myself in this. A lot of us are very quick to say things like Tolkien is not a fan of technology. But that's a very clumsy thing to say, um, because, you, I mean, technology is a big word, right? Um, and one cannot possibly maintain uh, the premise that Tolkien was opposed to technology. He was not opposed to technology. He had nothing, he, he seemed to have no problems whatsoever with Agriculture, for instance, the plow, the loom, the water mill. These are technologies, right? Actually quite advanced technologies that we see in this. Globally speaking, right? Historically speaking, the water mill, um, the, the, you know, kind of advanced agricultural techniques. uh, These are all, uh, none none of which are things which uh, Tolkien, it seems, would have any problem with uh, and which... Uh, nevertheless, like happen all the time, right? Um, so, what exactly did Tolkien not like? But even more specifically than that, though, I want to again, I want to think about elves, elves and technology. What do we see with elves and technology? So, when I'm talking about technology, please don't imagine that I'm trying to suggest a robot hand. I'm not suggesting a robot hand, but it, it becomes a question like, so you're the Noldor, right? And exactly as, uh, as is suggested on our slide here, the Noldor are very clever, right? They're wonderful at making things, but the question is not what can they do? The question is what would they do? Right? I could easily believe that somebody like Kurofin could possibly make something which would be like a hand, right? If they wanted to make a robot hand, it wouldn't be a robot hand, right? It wouldn't be it wouldn't be operating on electrical impulses and stuff. But again, they make wondrous things that are magical. Um, they can, as Robert Brown mentioned, like you know, you can make diamond studs that uh, that won't come unfastened until ordered, right? Um, you know, that fasten themselves and won't come unfastened until ordered. That's a thing, right? So, like, surely they could make. So I just like, what, what, what do they think? What do they, so there's, you're the sons of Feanor. Well, some of the sons of Feanor. You're five, you're the five other sons of Feanor and you're sitting around Mythros's bed, right? Mythros is unconscious, recovering from his ordeal at Thangorodrum and there's his arm uh, with a stump lying on top of the covers of his bed and you're looking at it. What are you thinking? Are you thinking... We can help him with it. What help would he want? Like, to what extent would they think we want to make something functional for him? Is function a thing that they're interested in? Now, see, Ellen, I I totally understand. uh, Ellen, you're using the word machine. And that's an important word. 
But again, like technology, machine is also a big word. A wheel is a machine. You know, a, a, a water mill is a complex machine. A loom is a complex machine. Okay, looms are less complex, but still, it's relatively complex. Um, those are machines. Um, uh, so, you know, a crowbar is a machine. So, I, I, again, I want to be careful. I want to be. I want to be. I want to be specific here. And and I, I, I'm emphasizing elves too because we know. This is going to be a really interesting question. Um, uh, this is, oh yeah, uh, Robert, wonderful. Uh, a, a mantle clock is certainly a machine, but even if we pretend the, man, the, the anachronistic mantle clock from The Hobbit doesn't exist, uh, Robert, what do we do with the umbrellas? Exactly as you say, an umbrella is a machine and a, and a relatively complex machine. Um, uh, so, uh, anyway... Um, there are lots of machines in Tolkien. The question Always. is, where do we draw the line? And, 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 and what machines are elves interested in or not interested in? Also, is this, are we automatically assuming it's a metal prosthetic? It could no, be wood, leather covered. It could be Who leather knows? covered wood. Yeah. I mean, would they just, would they just, um, would their only thought be like just medical care? Right, like let's just make sure he doesn't get gangrene, and then we're good. And then, like you know, he'll learn to fight with his left hand as well as his right, and and we can strap a shield onto his right arm, and and and, and he'll be fine. Or would they be thinking like we want him to be able to do things with his right arm? Like would he be like, hey, I'd really kind of like to still be able to you know pick up my teacup with my right hand? Can we do something here? Um, by the would way, it, we already decided he's going to have a prosthesis. No, would, that's what I'm just, trying to figure out. Would it yeah. would it occur to them? Would they care? Right. Would they care? Yeah, Mithlu and I agree. I don't think they would just make him a decorative fake hand, like just a falsy. No. Right. That no. That would be uh, that would be creepy, and I wouldn't think he would. I I, I can't imagine Mithros doing that at all. Mm-mm. Right. Mithros. If I, I mean my my number one. Uh, argument against a prosthesis of any kind. Um, and I'm not saying that I, I, I am totally against prosthesis of any kind, but my number one argument against it would be um, he wants to be remembered and every he wants, he wants to remember and he wants everybody else to remember. Like my yeah. wa- would want, he would not put a fake hand to be like, I want, I'm just like everybody else. Exactly. Yeah. I, I, I'm just like everybody else. Or I want people to look at me and not realize that I've lost my hand. Like, no. He would be like, um, you know, Morgoth. Like, we have a Morgoth problem. Like, the, don't don't forget my stump over here. Like, I you don't know, think you could he actually would... do a scene like that where somebody actually brings him something that they crafted for him and he refuses it and right. says, no, I don't want this to be hidden. I want this to be a, a you know, like a banner. Or a charge or an inspiration to you know continue to fight the enemy. Exactly. I don't think he would want to forget. I don't think that he would want to 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 fake it. Um, uh, yeah, exactly. I, I I I you know Mithros's intent right afterwards. He's he's focused. Um, and yeah, but. Um, But I return to the other question. Because, again, this is not just about Mithros' hand. Don't, like, so forget Mithros' hand for a second and think about the more general question. 
what is elves' interest in technology? They have some interest in it. You can't say they have no interest in technology. They farm, so they have interest in technology, right? They use tools. They have interest in technology. Like, tools means technology, right? So if you're going to develop tools, and you're immortal, and you're really clever, you have to stop somewhere for some reason, right? There's a reason we don't see the elves, you know, driving around in internal combustion engines, right? Or better, you know, flying around on, like, hovercraft and, th- and things, uh, you know, and, like, appearing and reappearing in TARDISes. Like, there's a reason elves don't do this, right? Um, what is that reason, exactly? That's what I'm trying to get at. You see what I mean? Alignment with Valinor? Alignment with the Valar? You know, if the Valar had wanted us to have that stuff, they would have given us, the, I don't know. You know. To me, it would be almost philosophical, wouldn't it? I mean, you know, aside from Tolkien's dislike of, okay, that's, but, but, but you know. But even, I mean, so like, to some extent, I'm interested in Tolkien's dislike in that, I mean, obviously it informs it. Um, but I'm less interested in that than in how it fills uh, right. The, the, than how it how it how it fits in the in how the it world, fit into right. the yeah, how it fits in the world. Exactly. I would think it would be alignment with the Valar. I mean. Right. But how exactly? So, Ellen, I agree with you that you know when Tolkien Tolkien did talk about the internal combustion engine and things like airplanes and bombs and stuff like that. As being, you know, he kind of associated those with like orcs and Sauron and Morgoth, like we have the goblins, right, inventing gunpowder and cannons and things like that, um, and bombs in The Hobbit, right? He, he, he alludes to that. We do have that general association. The question is why? If we think about it thematically, right, um, he is, um, uh, he is. If we think about it thematically, in what way is it associated with Morgoth and Sauron? Obviously, bombs are, like, applying ingenuity in order to make better and better tools for killing more and more people is, like, that's obviously not a good look, right? You know, that that's very Morgothian thinking, and that's pretty obvious, right? Um, but why, why other things? In what sense? And and I'm I'm not saying that because I don't think there's an answer. I do think that there's an answer. Um, and thinking especially, I've been reading a lot of early 20th century stuff lately. I've been reading a lot of G.K. Chesterton and C.S. Lewis lately. And so one of the stuff that I that is kind of very much in discussion and in the air uh, in you know the the first four decades of the 20th century is the increasing emphasis of applied science as an instrument for man's domination of nature, right? Uh, it, it, it's about domination, right? Humans are the lords of the world, and it is our applied science that will bring nature fully under our domination. That was a, a way that people were talking in ways that didn't make them feel uncomfortable back in, like, the 20s and 30s, right? That that was a big issue, right? Um and yeah, and I'm not saying it's not still an issue, but I'm saying that was that in my mind, that's the common thing, right? If there's a common element, if there's if there is a if there's a thing that they would be they the elves would be resistant to, that's what I think it would be. They would be resistant to um 
Yeah. The use, the the application of science. The word science just means knowledge, right? Learning about how, like, what things are and how they work. The application of knowledge, the application of science in order to dominate and control, that's the questionable thing, right? So, what kind of... Um, exactly, Tony, the eugenics movement very much at the center of that, right? Um, now, you know, Brianna yeah. gives us a little bit of a different angle here. And one of the things I picked up on in what she says is when you have fewer generations, there's not going to be this sort of build up over time. You know what I mean? It's not you don't have like the next generation, next generation, next generation with elves. I mean, that's I'm trying to think that through. I mean, you kind of have that with Morgoth, too. So I don't know if it's a it might just be not really applicable but i thought about that there's kind of an inertia yeah you know what i mean yeah yeah um yeah well okay if we um if we if we were to adopt that principle then to say the reason elves don't carry on advancing technology in the direction of the modern world, right? Which they have the wherewithal to do and the time. I mean, they could do it far better than we, right? Because they live for millennia, right? So like one single cunning elvish inventor could, you know, run the gamut, right? From like, uh, you know, Gutenberg, uh, uh, you know, all the way up through Edison, right? No problem. Eventually, right? Within, Within 10 millennia, um, I agree. I don't think they, I mean, I don't see any reason to think that they've done that. I don't see any reason to think they're interested in that. That didn't happen. My question is why? Why doesn't it happen? And I think it's important for us to figure this out because we need, as, uh, you know, Bri, as you were just talking about, warfare, they're very involved in warfare, Right. They have yeah. every motive. They have as much motivation as anyone in the history of our world to improve their military technology in order to give them the best possible chance against Morgoth. Right. So goodness knows there are going to be temptations for them to develop better and better and more and more effective weaponry. Right. Why don't the elves ever set themselves to making magic bombs? Why does elvish technology never advance? even when there seems to be a need for it, right? Again, I'm not saying that it should. I'm not suggesting changing that at all. I'm just saying I want to under, I'm going to make sure we understand why, because if we understand why, then we can apply that, right? Um, well, you know, and it's also, it's not just limited to the elves. I mean, the dwarves don't do it, and they certainly would have. They have the minds that would come up with it. The men don't. Think of the Gondorian. I mean, in well, the third the age. Well, the men do, though. The Numenorians do. Do they have like grands of their own and trebuchets and that kind of stuff? Or no, it seems like we only they see have, that on the... they have field pieces and cannons and airplanes mm. and warships and like armored warships in the earlier versions the of it. That's he, true. Yeah. Uh, uh, Tolkien rolls back from that, right? But I mean, the original reason why Sauron uh, uh, surrenders to Arpharazon in the earliest, in the early drafts, the reason Sauron surrenders to Arpharazon is because all of his army runs away, and the reason all of his army <laughs> runs away is that the Numenorians open up with their artillery, uh, and right. and the armies of Mordor scatter. This is why Sauron cannot fight 
Like he can, there is no way that his army can possibly fight the Numenorians on the battlefield. Now again, Tolkien rolled back from that, right? Uh, you know, the 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 version that we see in the Akalabaith of the Numenorians, we are still told that, and he he worked this out in a little bit more of a nuanced way in uh, some of the unfinished tales stuff when he, where he talks about the Numenorians uh, there. Um, but he's still, I think he's still kind of walking a fairly fine line there. Anyway, yeah, so the Numenorians, uh, uh, Marie, exactly, they're way more pro-technology uh, mm-hmm, than the elves. Mm-hmm. But again, my question is, why? Why are the Numenorians so much more pro-technology than the elves? What is it about the elves? And again, the, 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 that one principle that makes sense to me is the domination thing, the domination of nature. I think it's stewardship versus domination. You know, elves see themselves as stewards, where the Numenorians and also Morgoth and his guys are into dominating. I mean, I think that is the distinction we see whenever we see that. And, you know, and I mean, I don't know why, but Da Vinci popped in my mind. I mean, we think of him as being this great artist, but truthfully, he got most of his commissions doing war machines, right? right. I mean, that was kind of his big thing. So um, it just seems to me like, but I don't know how to, I mean, the other thing I was thinking is that that actually needs to be obviously a very, very deeply rooted thing in the elven culture so that it would never come up, yes. you know, even in the third yes. age, even when Sauron comes back, it would just yes. never come up for them to do it. Yes. You know, it has to be so like fundamental to their culture. Yeah. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a choice that they are making, right? They could advance their military. I I don't doubt that they could make something like bombs if they wanted to, right? They could, but they don't. They don't ever go in that direction. They don't ever move in that direction. Um, And I I get, it's exactly as you say, Trish, they would be so contrary to their worldview, right? Um, Right. They wouldn't go there. Um, And uh, Robert, I think that's a really great point. Elves need to make sure that what they're killing is an enemy. Right. Um, Elves would not be okay with collateral damage, even the kind of collateral damage. I mean, look what happens to the I mean, forgetting even the uh, and of course, this is a very Tolkien thing, forgetting even the loss of life of human life at the Somme. Think what happened to the land. At the Somme, right? The, just the horrible description of no man's land, which informed the Dead Marshes and uh, and especially the horrible lands warped and twisted by war outside the gates of Mordor, right? Um, that like the elves are not would not be OK with this, right? Just unleashing a weapon, which, yes, is going to be very effective against the orcs, but is also going to destroy so many other things and lay waste to the land. Totally. They're not going to do that. Right. Um yeah, so stewardship, I think that's a really key word, Trish, and I think it's a really good thing to think about. That's now, how do we show that, though? You know, that's not like they're going to have a casual conversation about this with each other because it's so like no. part of their nature. You know what I mean? It's like, do we do no, we even well, address it, or is it more in the backstory? Is it more well, kind of that's why that's why I'm kind of working this out because it, it's in things like this, small things like Mithros's hand, right? Where to me it comes up. Um, uh, Again, my my question is not should Mithros have a robot hand. I don't think he should have a robot hand. But my but the question makes me ask why shouldn't he have a robot hand? <laughs> like why why should over time why are they not developing more and more effective prosthetics for Mithros's hand? And I'm not sh- first of all, 
I'm not even necessary. I, I, I think I could be influenced almost in, in almost any direction about Mithras's hand. Honestly, I don't have a strong stake in this. But this, but it's to me the theoretical question is far more important. So if we think about it as stewardship rather than dominion, if that is the number one thing which informs elvish, um, uh, uh, elvish technology, right, and the application of elvish knowledge, um. One of the things, for instance, I would believe that this would mean elvish agriculture would work very differently. Right? They're not going to... Remember the relationship that... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, this is, a, this is a, another discussion we had in Exploring the Lord of the Rings. Um, <laughs> why, why the Hobbits... Stealing our thunder. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Stealing everything. Again... By the end of the time, there will be nothing we have not discussed. In well, you know, yeah, I mean, he's going through sentence by sentence in Lord the of the Rings. The whole point so, of exploring know. the Lord of the Rings is to discuss <laughs> all the things. But anyway, um, we were looking at the passages where it talks about the antipathy between the Old Forest and the, sh- and the Hobbits, right? The conflict between the Old Forest and, and the Hobbits. And what we were pointing out, what we were talking about there is this is very simple. Like, the farmers and the forest can't be friends. Like, if you're a farmer... Your, the forest is your enemy, the encroaching forest who is like, you've got to clear the land in order to farm, right? Elves aren't going to do that, right? Elves aren't going to clear cut. Yeah, you know, they're, they're not going to burn for in order to plant where the forest was, right? They're not going to um, even, you know, I'm not even sure what kinds of irrigation they would use exactly, right? Um Again, I, I think I, I, I think it would be, it would be different. Um, yeah, Bree, good. It's in, there's also the question of their relationship with the Valar and with Iluvatar himself yeah, and being stewards of her. the earth. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, definitely, yep. definitely. They would see themselves in that way. Um, uh, so yeah, um, there are there are small things that we can. So like for instance, here's one other example. Um, if we sh- when we show in Gondolin, I would think is where it would come up most, because surely the fields, um, uh, the fields around Gondolin have to be uh, cultivated, right? Because how else are they going to eat if they're not cultivating those those fields? And there are plenty of fields to cultivate. Um, but when we show cultivated fields around the city of Gondolin, I don't think the the crops should be planted in rows. Um, you know, we should not see like the neat. Uh, you know, the neat squares and rectangles uh, and rows of crops that you see in normal human farming. Um, not only because they're not driving tractors, but again, I don't think that that kind of things is... Uh, um, uh, just That just kind of strikes me. I'm, when, when I'm trying to imagine, again, this concept of this application of the elvish cap on technology... Um, taking the land and forcing it into a shape, take, forcing the plants to grow in these particular places. Um, I would think that I they would, would think... sing to encourage the, the crops, right? They, would, they, would, they right. would nourish and encourage the life in the, in the wheat that they wanted to grow, right? Um, but I don't think they would, you know, force it into rows and, and, uh, and everything. I would think that they would create their uh, agriculture to be equal ecological in other words they would actually have an ecosystem instead of like a field of one crop 
that same amount of land would be they would actually fashion an ecosystem in other words there would be multiple multiple crops there would be you know pollination by bees there would be you know what i mean mm -hmm. it would be like almost like an ecosystem kind of thing i mean i could see that being true to their like yavana would do right this is something that yavana would right or she did kind of you know but what they would be doing is kind of in cooperation with nature cultivating yeah. certain yeah and i agree phil i was thinking about weeds also um uh and um uh and how would you how would you uh distinguish between crops and weeds um i would think first of all that you've got to think that elves would be a little bit less wholesale than humans are in human gardeners are in getting rid of weeds like those plants that we call weeds are like they have their own function and their own beauty right right um, they are taking the nutrients from the soil and where you want your wheat to grow. Uh, but surely they could handle that kind of situation. I'm not sure exactly I how they would know. do it, but I don't would think they would even be a, would weed even be a concept to elves? Right. Exactly. Not, not, not just weeding in the way that we weed, I wouldn't think. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, um, both Marie and, uh, and Ellen are agreeing with you, Trish, about no, no monoculture, uh, right there yeah yeah no exactly that's and also one generation's weeds is another generation's you know designer plant so, <laughs> so i think it's a relative term <laughs> right no i mean you would think that uh, that the elvish impulse would be to like appreciate the beauty and even the use of each plant for in its own kind and for its own ways right so they they certainly wouldn't have uh such a, a hard crop versus weed dichotomy in their minds right anyway i'm getting into agriculture here just because i'm thinking of, i'm thinking of illustrations right i'm thinking of examples of how elvish technology differs. there's still technology there right even magical technology is technology even if you're encouraging crops to grow with song that's technology right uh, that's right. what it means um right uh so you know actually each each uh species what am i saying each race has its own relationship with technology because dwarves are certainly technological, but not in the same way elves are. Yeah. So I think what we're doing right now is defining what, what, what is elven technology. And I think this whole uh, being in harmony with nature, being stewards of the land, I mean, any technology that, that, that enhances that stewardship, I would think they would go after, but anything that destroys it, they wouldn't basically. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean that, that makes sense to me. So let's see. So then how would this then work? Thinking outside of agriculture then. Um, would we know elves weave? So they would not because a loom ultimately is a tool, right? Like a tool that is used for a craft. Um, I mean, it's a machine. But it's a tool. I mean, all tools are machines, um, uh, technically. Um, they're woodworkers. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, we do have to be careful. Again, and this is a, a mistake I, I find people often making about elves. We can't be like, elves would never harm anything. Sure they would, right? What did they sit on at Woodall when the hobbits were visiting the elves? Answer, sawn trunks of trees is what they sat on. Right. So like that, they, they cut down trees, um, uh, you know, elves cut down trees 
and you know and and yet they have need of wood right this is true of the elves as well as it is of anybody else they make things out of wood and not just dead wood um uh they they uh they carve stone they hunt they hunt and kill animals yes i mean we we can't we can't go to but i almost think of it as a, it almost like in a native american uh tradition first of all where they use all of the pieces of whatever the tree the animal you know all that stuff so they have bone implements or whatever and the native americans i i, I don't know that every tribe did this but i remember there was one i think it was the washoe tribe in california they would actually had a ritual where they would apologize to the animal before they killed it i mean you know when they'd go hunting <laughs> They kind of commune with the nature of the animal and, you know, this kind of, I mean, I don't, I'm not saying elves should do that, but I'm just saying there is a way to be that way in, in yes. harmony. There is, there is, it, it, it's as much about the attitude uh, uh, with which you do it as, right. as anything else. Right. Yeah. And I, I mean, isn't, it was the Numenorians that actually wa- laid waste to the forests in Middle Earth, right? For their shipbuilding. Is that yes. right? It was the yes. men. Yeah. 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 It was the Numenorians. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Um, uh, yeah, good. Uh, Maria's recalling, of course, Gimli's description of how the dwarves would shape Aglarond, uh, how you can you can shape nature without dominating it. Um, yes. Yes. I like that statement, actually, shape nature without dominating it. Exactly. Yep. Um, Whereas Morgoth, I don't even know that Morgoth cares that much about nature, except it's how it can serve him, basically. Yes. So another thing that someone, Ellen, maybe you brought up early, earlier was that the the idea that the elves would not be very interested in labor-saving devices. That seems to me perfectly true. Um, The example that immediately comes to mind, cunning elves who've lived for thousands of years could surely have devised a mechanism which would push barrels through a hatch automatically right surely some elf could be sitting there pulling a lever and like you know advancing the barrels down the chute right but no the the elves choose to roll the barrels by hand over to the hole and push it down why do they do that because it's fun they love rolling the barrels into the hole they sing songs about it right they wouldn't be able to i mean i guess theoretically you could pull a weaver and still sing the splash plump song but it's much it's they love it it's fun right it's clearly fun um so that kind of delight like they, they don't want to minimize how they interact with the world Besides which, labor-saving devices are also for people who are short on time, right? I mean, if you're immortal, what do you care, right? I mean, if I were immortal, I probably would wash my dishes by hand instead of using the dishwasher, too. I use the dishwasher because I got other things I got I to gotta get done before I die, right? Um, so, yeah, I... I, I um, um, I, I think that's you know that that, uh, that both the urgency of labor saving devices and even again the, so just like the concept I want to I want to interact with my surroundings less in a sense right is one of the things that informs um, labor saving devices. I don't think there is I don't I don't think there is bothered. Um, yeah yeah. Um, 
Yeah, Tony points out, and I agree. Do we get a single example of an Elvish wheeled vehicle? Do we ever see an elf in a wheeled vehicle? Another example of a thing that seems like it would be pretty easy for them to come up with. Oh, and, no question. And, and would actually be of great utility on some of these long journeys. Right. Can, can uh, easily see um, Arwen, Arwen traveling between Rivendell and Lothlorien in a like carriage. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and yet no evidence that she did so, right? Um, yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, no, they, they, they don't seem to use wheeled vehicles. And again, my goal is here just to try to understand why. You know, to try to if we can if we can get a clearer sense of the culture here and the reasons they make the decisions that they do, then I think we will be equipped to answer simple questions like, what do they do with Mytheros's stump? Um, They would not want to... So the number one thing I think has to be the stewardship versus domination thing, right? That's the number one rule. It's not even necessarily a rule. Like, that's the one, the number one cultural fact about elves. Beyond that, I don't think that they would be interested in applying science and applying, in you know, utilizing technologies that distance them from direct experience of the world. Even a wheeled vehicle, right? Yes, it's useful, but why is it useful? It's useful for moving objects, right? Um, uh, but actually, you know, Dave, that's a really good example. Arwen in the carriage, right? You'd think, well, surely Ar- Arwen would, ne- would, would need a carriage, right? This is a big deal. Except, notice the implications of that, right? Like, she must ride in a carriage? Why would she ride in a carriage? What is riding in a carriage? Riding in a carriage is like sitting in a box so that what? You can pretend to be not, you know, so you can travel not without being horse. exposed to the elements so that you yeah, can right. be, so that you can use the labor of horses without having any connection to the horse, without even being aware that the horse is, uh, is there, right? Right. Um, you know, I, I, that, why would you do that? Why would you want that, right? To be sheltered from the elements? Why? Wouldn't you want to be in touch with the elements? Like, the elements are part of Arda, right? This is part of the experience. This is what, uh, again, as we were talking about before a few weeks back, I don't think that the Noldor would make um, ways to protect themselves from the rain. They would make clothes that looked even more gorgeous when it rained. You know, like, they they would... the, the idea, like, Noldor rain gear would not be to keep the water off of them. It would be to take advantage of the water and the uh, the, the opportunities that water presents, right? Right. Um, so, um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, so... By the way, hey, Corey. Yeah. So I think uh, we lost Trish... Oh, and, do we uh, I now also must bow out. Oh, no. Okay. All right. Thank you for the warning there. Thank you for the warning. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So that I don't just ghost you. Yeah. No. 
So no problem. Good topic. We didn't get to casting, or at least the segment that I was a part yeah, of. Yeah, no, I don't uh, think we're going to get to casting, but that's okay. We'll do casting <laughs> no, next time. That doesn't seem very likely. And I'm sorry that I I won't get to help finish out this topic because I I think we're on to something. It's uh, I think so too. Do you have any Do you have any so, final so, final opinions on what whether he should wear a prosthetic of any kind? Uh, I think I'm against. I don't really see why. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like like it. I I agree that he wouldn't do it for adornment. And it's unclear that it would serve any kind of like uh, functional purpose. Like he, I don't think he needs it for wielding a sword or a weapon. And um, you know, I, I suppose maybe if uh, he maybe he could have like an attachment to help him fire a bow if he really wanted to. But I, I, I think I'm against. And I, I, uh, I also like. Um, I think we're 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 sort of we're sort of have the inkling of a general principle to explain mm-hmm. kind of the elvish attitude toward quote unquote technology and why why there's like simple contraptions that they don't have that they right. sort of seems like they would have that right. you know they I think you're right that like yeah. there there is kind of a resistance to having devices mediate between between the uh, the person and sort of the environment or the world um, now of course the tricky thing I think will be explaining the wide range of obvious exceptions to that like clothing <laughs> right right so, yes <laughs> i like this idea that's a really good point <laughs> yeah yeah Why aren't but it... you know it's fine i mean tolkien's full of contra- contradictions but I, I i do think i think culture is full of contradictions like real yeah, cultures exactly. are full of contradictions yeah true yeah. yeah so i like i like this idea though so okay so that, cool. all right i'll go out on that note excellent thank you yep have fun thank you okay so we'll we'll continue for a little bit we'll do this and we'll do there's one more uh simple question afterwards uh which we'll do and then we'll we'll leave the casting for our next time um but um but yeah no i as as, as principles go i think that this uh, this stuff all makes sense, and again, to me, it's really, it's really valuable. To, I think this is a thing that's going to come up on many different occasions, and especially as we're thinking about, this is going to be a major issue next year. As we're thinking about really beginning to side by side look at the differences between human culture and human outlook and elvish culture and elvish outlook. So I think we've made actually a lot of strides this season in thinking through more um, what elvish culture is like and how it differs from human culture. But anyhow, on the specific prosthetic question, I'm now trying to think about if we have, having worked out these general principles... Is there any clear-cut application of those principles to this issue of Mytheris's prosthetic? Do we have reason to think, given if we accept the kind of cultural framework uh, that we uh, that we're kind of establishing here, this framework of um, of stewardship over dominion and um, uh, not distancing oneself from direct interaction with Arda um, within reason, uh, with uh, acknowledging Dave's exception of clothes. Um, I think that um, I actually don't think that the prosthetic question is clear cut in one way or the other, as far as those particular principles are concerned. Um, using some kind of mechanical by which I just mean uh, non-aesthetic. Like, so th- there are two categories of prosthetic he could have, right? A purely aesthetic one 
uh, of some kind and a functional one. Um, or and obviously one could have both, but those are the, would be the two reasons to make a prosthetic, right? Um, for function or for, for show. Um, and I can imagine arguments. I think I could make arguments for any of the three options, right? An, uh, one for show, one for uh, function or none. I think I could make arguments for all three of those that would fit within our overall schema here. Um, it's not a, it's not about dominating nature because it's himself, right? It's, he's, uh, um, he's not, it's not like a labor saving device because he's, it's just like enabling him to continue interacting with the world, like in something closer to the way that he did before. So that doesn't seem to violate any of those things. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I have no problem, Marie and, and Halstein, uh, you know, with, like in battle, if he needs a shield, like he could do whatever he needs to do. Right. I mean, if he if <clears throat> I can absolutely imagine somebody designing like a custom shield for Mithros, which he's able to strap on to his uh, to his stump, right? Strap onto his uh, to his arm uh, in a particular way. That all makes perfect sense to me. Um, and I that 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 doesn't even seem to me to be controversial, really. Um, yeah, yeah, I can't I can't imagine. I mean, in a sense, to to design a special shield which Mithros can use without a hand seems to me an extension of the principle that says, if I'm designing a helmet for you, I'm going to make it to fit your head, right? So they're making a shield to fit Mithros's arm, which happens to not have a hand, right? So they're going to, they're going to make it fit. They're going to make it work. So that doesn't seem to me, I, I, I don't even feel like that's a, a, a sort of a question at all. The question would just be, you know, not on the battlefield, but, you know, and when we see Mithros hanging out with, you know, Fingolfin, uh, you know, when uh, uh, when what's her name? Thorngwethel is spying on them, uh, as we discussed in episode four, I think. Um, and they're just hanging. Right. What's Mithros's arm? Um, I. Yeah, William, I agree. We do need to think about what would motivate him, right? Um, because, of course, you could make arguments for or against any of our three possibilities based on what the motivation would be. Um, uh, I, the, the number one thing I, would, I think I would argue against would be concealment out of embarrassment, Right. And I'm not, of course, saying that that's bad. I mean, uh, like someone, uh, you know, someone in our world who loses a limb and dislikes having people stare at them. That is totally legit. And there's nothing wrong with that. Right. Um, I, I can only imagine what an issue that would be. And if I am totally sympathetic to that motivation, but I don't think it fits Mithros. And certainly not in these circumstances. I cannot. That's the, the 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 thing that I have the hardest time imagining is Mithros wanting to downplay his mutilation. 
I think that if anything, he would upplay it. I'm not saying he would upplay it. I'm not saying he would wave it in people's faces all the time. I can imagine a circumstance in which he would wave it in somebody's face. Um, but I certainly don't think he would have any desire to conceal it. Um, so that motivation seems to me not fitting at all uh, with the character of Mithros <coughs> as we... Um, uh, as we uh, uh, as we've conceived him and as he's described in the book, um, other motivations. Um, yeah, Bree says such a change comes over him at this point in the story. He would own his mistakes here that led to him losing his hand. Absolutely, if there is any shame in it, because one could imagine shame associated with it here. That is shame that he like fell into the trap, right? Uh, I mean, he was duped when he was taken prisoner. He was not just overcome in battle. He was duped uh, and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and taken. Um, there's, I think, perhaps some shame there, but Bree, exactly. He, he's going to own that now, right? Um, and he's going to be really focused. Um, so, Marie, yeah, thinking about purely practical things. There will be some things that he can't do with one hand. Yes, he can wield his sword more deadly with his left than he used to with his right. But that doesn't mean he can do up his own buttons anymore, right? If he doesn't have something. Um, As Marie points out, uh, would he rely on others? to help him with things. And again, to me, the question is, what would... What would he do and why? What fits his personality and his his sort of place in the story, like where he is in his place in the story? Um, what would fit him best? I agree, Robert. I mean, he's likely to have, you know body servants anyway. Um, The fact that he needs somebody to button his buttons for him doesn't seem like a difficulty, honestly. Um, um, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of this question in two different ways to myself. One is, is there something that, other than fighting with a sword uh, and sh- and strapping a shield to his stump, is there anything that he would want to do that would necessitate him, you know, that that, that would lead to a, a mounting a tool on his arm of some kind, right? Um, or... Part of me, when I think of the, you know, the way in which Mithros just like burns with a flame after this, like as he is one who has come back from the dead, what does that mean exactly? You know, that he was as one who returns from the dead. I would think, when I imagine Mithros for that reason, like because of that passage, 
I imagine somebody who is not necessarily ascetic, but somebody who is much less focused on, like, the mundane things of the world than most of the rest of people, you know? Um, I would think that Mithros would be less concerned with convenience than anybody. I mean, do, do you see what I mean? Does that make sense? I don't know if that fits everybody's uh, picture. Um, Tony, I I agree, like, making things is obviously something that's important for elves, and Mithros, I wouldn't... If he loses that, that's bad. I mean, if he abandons being a maker, that's like a fall, right? And I don't think we want to show Mullen... I don't think we want to show him fallen, Mithros fallen. I don't think we want to show him, like, twisted by his experience in that way. Um, I think... I get, you know, Tony, I think I always have imagined him. I've never really articulated this to myself, but Tony just asks, so he'd be kind of like a warrior monk. I think I've actually kind of always imagined him like that. And the reason I've always imagined him like that is that the thing that the Silmarillion emphasizes about his life afterwards is fighting, right? Like the training montage, right? That's like the, the, the one time I'm invited to picture Mithros doing something other than being involved in larger strategic questions. Um, I... But I'm not necessarily saying that we actually depict him as a warrior monk. I think he should still make things, but I think that in his making of things... All right. The more I think about it, the more I am going to come down... The more I am coming down on the side of no prosthetic other than, the like again, the special shield that's been made for him... Um, I'm coming down the side of no prosthetic. And the reason I'm coming down on the side of no prosthetic is that I see Mithros... Bree, it's, it's sort of connected to what you were saying about him owning his mistakes and things like that. Um, there would be some things that he can't do or has a very hard time doing, but I would think that he would own that as well, like that he would accept the limitations and his focus would be on not on how can I create a substitute for my right hand, but how can I, just as he went on with his sword, right, uh, to learn, he taught himself the sword with his left hand, he's going to teach himself other things with his left hand as well. And he's not necessarily going to stop uh, making things, um, but he is going to do things that he can do with his left hand. So, you know, maybe he, he, he also, we don't get the training montage with it, but he also teaches himself to paint with his left hand, for instance, you know, like that, that kind of thing. Um, and if there was, you know, an art or, you know, a, an undertaking of some kind that he is now physically, it's now physically impossible for him to do, he would do without that seems to me to fit Mithros much better. Um, again, he's not trying to resume normal life, right? He's not trying to, like, get back to his life as it was before Thangarodrim. He is building a new life post-Thangarodrim. And his missing hand is not only a part of that life, it is like the reminder, right? It is 
it is central to that new life, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Halstein is saying that, you know, um, uh, yeah, he's, I've seen people with only one hand do more than many or even they themselves would uh, think that they uh, could do. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, some of the things that he is able to accomplish with his left hand only should be, I mean, people can even comment on it, right? I mean, we, that could even be a thing that we work in, you know, to sort of show he will um, work on being the best that he can be with his left hand. But again, I, I can't, the more I think about it, the less I can see him wanting some kind of mechanical substitute of one kind or another, whether it be functioning or, you know, whether it be, you know, something like a magic robot hand or whether it be even just a simple tool mounted on his hand, you know, on his arm. Um, I, I don't see him wanting that. I want I, I see him, you know, sort of refining himself, his new self uh, there. And yes, Ethelot, I do think it would be there for all to see. I don't think he would hide it, um, especially since remember Mithros, one of his roles is is military, right? And uh, he is on the... Remember there's the spectrum among the elves, right? Some who just kind of want to get on with things and aren't really focused on the war side of things and others who are very much focused on the war and Mithros is near the extreme, right, on that side. Um, so, yes, he's going to want a reminder, uh, and a visual reminder, like not for himself exclusively, but a reminder for others, right? That uh, uh, of what's there, right? Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Now, and I do see your your comments there, but again, I, I to me that I don't feel like that fits with Mithros's character. The 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 thing that's emphasized in the text is his transformation, right? He is different. Like that's the main thing. He is different. Um, he is as one who returns from the dead, which, by the way, is a phrase I've always, you know, I'm not saying I know exactly what that means because I've never been sure that I have understood what that means. But the one thing I do understand about it is that it's a big deal, right? Uh, it's a it's a it's a major change. Um, uh, so um, anyway, yeah, I, I, I think because for him, it's not just Ellen. It's not just a it's not just a, a personal trauma. Right. That's not Mithros. I don't think that's Mithros's relationship with his stump at all. I don't think he is thinking about it's not it. It's not a PTSD issue for Mithros. I don't think that's that's not the point at all. The point is that he. Um, his response to his maiming, his response to his captivity. He is changed. He is galvanized. He is um, activated by that. Um, he defers to Fingolfin. He is one of the most passionate of the opponents of... He is very willing, right, that the full force of Morgoth's... Uh, uh, you know, the, the brunt of Morgoth's assault should fall upon him and upon his people, right? That's the kind of person that Mithros is afterwards. He is focused right this has been a transformative relation a, a moment for him and i think not a not a purely negative one in either sense in the sense that it was purely bad like 
it, it has he has made a, a good thing of it in his life, um, and also not merely negative in the sense of being an absence. Right? It's a it, it is a it is a presence. It is a positive thing uh, in his life in that way. Um, yeah, Robert, you're right. He's very different from the, how the other one hand uh, from the other one handed man who returns from the dead. You're right. No relation. No relation. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Good. Okay. Um, excellent. Um, good. Let's go to that last issue, which I don't plan to spend nearly so much time talking about because it's not such a big question. The size of the eagles. So this is one of those really interesting moments, right, where if we depict what the text literally says, it's going to be a little bit challenging. The published Silmarillion says that Thorondor's wingspan is 30 fathoms. It's 180 feet. 55 meters from wingtip to wingtip is Thorondor. Um, And uh, that means he's just a little bit smaller than a Boeing 747. That is absolutely enormous, right? Now, Thorondor absolutely can be absolutely enormous, but uh, I can understand the thrust of the question. <laughs> like, do we really want to make Thorondor this big? Um, uh, do we want to literally use that measurement? Um, if so, when he is carrying someone, that person is going to be invisible, right? That person is going to look like a tick on the side of the eagle, right? Um, I, now, obviously... Um, uh, yeah, um, visually speaking, that doesn't seem to me to be a good look, you know, I, um, now, Bree, Melvin, you have cautioned me in the past and you are, and I, 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 I want to recall it here. There have been many times in the past when I've said, oh, that's going to look ridiculous, right? And you have said, give the, um, give the verbal, uh, give the visual artists a chance, right? Before I dismiss something as necessarily looking stupid, give the visual artists a chance to actually see if they can depict it without it looking stupid. So I'm, I'm, um, I'm, sensible of that here. But this question of pure scale uh, seems to me rather a different question. If he's 180 feet in wingspan, that means that Thorondor, when landed on the ground, is bigger than a barn. Or, like, at least the size of a barn. That's really big. Do we want him that big? Um, Bree says, just draw it to measurement and then pull back until it looks good. Exactly, right. So I'm trying to to think about that. Um, 
Well, let's go with giant birds that we know. The eagles in Peter Jackson's film looked pretty good, but they're pretty small. Um, what would you say the wingspan of the Peter Jackson eagles are? I'm thinking of, I'm picturing Gandalf riding on the back of one of the eagles. The wingspan, many times Gandalf's height. Probably at least 30 feet. Yeah, Tony was thinking 30 feet. That's what I was just thinking, too. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I would be fine with him being bigger than that. But I'd Because Thorondor should stand out. I mean, Thorondor should... What's the role of... Th oh, hang on, here I am making the question bigger. Um, well, Marie, I agree. Yeah, so let's think of Thorondor's jobs. What are, what are Thorondor's jobs? And by this I don't mean what is the role that has been allotted to him by Manway. I mean what are his jobs in the narrative. When does he appear and what does he do when he does appear? Uh, carry Mithros and Fingen back to the camp, as we've already, that's how he appears in this season. We need him to uh, assist in ferrying Baron and Luthien uh, back to Doriath, of course. We need him to attack Morgoth's face, Marie as you say. Um, yeah, and Robert, that's... I'm, it's the face one that I'm having the hardest time um, imagining. First of all, carrying Fingolfin's body is another one, of course, Marie. Um, what size would the claw, would the talon, like with the feet of an eagle that big B. I mean, <clears throat> how hard would it be for him to pick up a body if he's that? I mean, he's huge. He's huge. Um... Yeah, yeah. Um, so he can't... If he were that big, I mean, if he were that big, he'd have a hard time picking up anybody. And, and, and again, that would look like him picking up an ant, right? Or at least like a... It wouldn't even look like... If you imagine a a large eagle, like a bald eagle. Um, we used to have a lot of bald eagles down in Delaware where I lived. There are some that live not far from my house, actually. I'd see them all the time flying. I once hit one with my car, almost. Almost. I come around the corner, and there's one perched on, a bald eagle perched on roadkill in the middle of the road. And I like, he like barely took off. I almost hit him with my little car. 
um, my son's car now. So, um, bald eagles are big. If you imagine a bald eagle carrying a mouse, right? I mean, that would be tiny in the foot of a bald eagle, but yet proportionally, that would still be bigger, wouldn't it, than a human in the claws of a uh, an eagle as big as a seven forty seven. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I. I um, it can't be that big. And to attack Morgoth's face, how tall do we want Morgoth to be? You know, as, as Robert says, uh, you know, if, if if he's the size of a 747, you just come and crush Morgoth, right? I mean, Morgoth can be very tall, but Morgoth can't be that tall uh, if he's fighting Fingolfin. I mean, Fingolfin's got to at least... I mean, I know Fingolfin's only hitting his feet. But still, like... Um, We've got to think about that scene too, you know, and, and, and I don't think we want to make. What height would you put Morgoth at? I think if he's three to five times Fingolfin's height, it would be okay. But if he's ten times Fingolfin's height or more, um, it's going to be harder to take it seriously as a duel. Um,. I don't think, yeah, I mean, it depends on how, like, how Jack the Giant Killer we want to get with Fingolfin there. Um, exactly, Robert. Yeah, he hits his feet when he's being, st- when, when the foot's on his neck, right? Uh, but the other wounds could be higher up. I agree. Um, somewhere between three, to three, three and five, maybe two and five times as tall as Fingolfin. Um, I'd be fine with a 15 to 20 foot Morgoth, actually, really. Um, yeah, okay, yeah, so exactly 18 to, or even, yeah, even lower than 18. I could, I could see a 15 foot Morgoth. I mean, that would still be, it would give the impression of a very, we have to establish Fingolfin as the very clear underdog, but we don't want to make him look like a bug that can just be squished. Um, yeah, so so again, if Morgoth is fifteen to twenty feet tall maximum, then there is no way that, that Throndor can have a hundred and eighty foot wingspan, right? And he would be taller, like standing on the ground, he would be taller than Morgoth. Um, you know, and then you'd get like Thorondor comes down and he's like, come over here and say that. Right. And that's just not the right dynamic for that fight. Um, so. Um, yeah. So if Morgoth is 15 to 20 feet tall, Thorondor has to. Now, when I imagine him scratching at his face, I don't imagine him like the size of his face, just like scratching at it. Right. I mean, He's attacking his face because his face is the part that's highest up, and of course he's he's like making him duck and back away. Um, but wingspan, his wingspan obviously can be more than the height of Morgoth, right? Because that his body is much smaller than his wingspan. Um, uh, so he needs to be smaller than Morgoth, though. That's 
it's a tough balance because I don't want Morgoth to be that big, but I want the Rondor to be that small. I mean, I agree, uh, Tony, with your estimate that the Peter Jackson Eagles look to be about 30 foot wingspan or so. Um, and I wouldn't certainly Thorondor obviously can't be smaller than that. I mean, those eagles look barely large enough to carry humans, right? Thorondor has to be much more ample than that. Um, so, um, yeah, yeah. Um, hmm. Yeah, if he had something like twice that, if he had a 60-foot wingspan, how, how, how large would his body be then? So 60-feet wingspan, that's... His body would be larger. An eagle with a 60-foot wingspan standing on the ground would be taller than a human, but shorter than Morgoth. Um... Okay, good. Bree said she was just doing the math, and she's getting thirty-five to forty-foot wings as well uh, for the for the Peter Jackson Eagles. Um, okay, okay. So, yeah. Well, Robert, we'll get to Ancalagon the Black. Um, I'm not making Ancalagon the Black as big as a mountain range. That ain't happening. Nor do I think, by the way, that that's what that description means. Yes, he's described as as breaking the mountain when he falls, but so is the Balrog. Uh, uh, I don't think that that's what that description means. I know that some people use that description of Ancalagon's fall uh, to imagine that Ancalagon must be larger than mountains himself, and I do not, like that he squished the mountains when he fell on them, and I do not believe that at all. Um, I, I, that is to say, I, when I say I don't believe that, I mean I don't think that's what is being described in that. I, I, I think I think they're misreading that passage. Um, but anyway, that's a that's a that's a decision for another for another time. We won't get to wing dragons for a while, um, though we do have to think about the size of Glaurung eventually as well uh, here. Um, okay, so Tony thinks a sixty foot wingspan would mean about twenty foot body length, including the tail. That's big. That is a big, big bird. Yeah. Because even then, you know, that would have him, you know, I mean, that would have him in Morgoth's weight class, basically. Um, But at the same time, maybe... Maybe I'm okay with that. Maybe I'm okay with the fact that Thorondor kind of looks like he might be able to take Morgoth. It would certainly increase the sense of catastrophe when he intervenes, right? Um, not to mention his role. Thorondor is the greatest of all of the eagles, he should be very much bigger than the rest of them. If he's 60-foot wingspan, the others should be, like, 45, right? I mean, like, Gwaihir and Landreval and Meneldor should be, like, 45-foot wingspan max, maybe 30. Um, Thorondor should be very significantly larger than the other great birds. Um, 
Uh, cool. Uh, awesome. Ethelod says that Weta gives the wingspan of Gwai here uh, as uh, uh, 31 feet, 950 centimeters. Uh, so, okay, there we go. Excellent. Good. Um, okay, yeah. So he would stand about 12 feet high when he was landed. So that Gwaihir's eye level would be about 12 feet up. So he would, so when, if he were on the ground with his wings, you know, folded, Morgoth would look down on him. Morgoth would have several feet on him and with armor and weapons and, and looking mean, right? When he's in the air and swooping down on him, Thorondor would be genuinely threatening to Morgoth. Would certainly appear generally threatening. And that seems to me good in as much as Thorondor is the agent of, uh, you know, is the, 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 the agent of Manway, right? I mean, the Eagles of the Lords of the West, right? That's Thorondor's job title, right? Um, so when he comes swooping in, it should look imposing, even to Morgoth, even compared to Morgoth personally, it should look imposing. And that seems to me to fit it. 60-foot wingspan, 20-foot body length in the air, 12-foot standing height, Morgoth is say fifteen feet, maybe maybe go all the way up to the eighteen or twenty feet for Morgoth, so that Morgoth would still tower over him when they were both standing. If Morgoth is twenty feet high, that would put so Fingolfin would stand if they're standing next to each other. Fingolfin would his head would come up to what like mid thigh on Morgoth. That works, right? It works for me because, again, it's an obvious mismatch, but Fingolfin could still stab up towards the vitals, right? I mean, you get the sense of, like, it's still a, it's still, it's a possible fight, uh, even though not a likely win, you know? Again, serious underdog situation. Uh, that would create, I think, the right level of grandeur when... Thorondor is like coming back. I'm, I'm imagining that wonderful scene that we were describing at the end of episode one, right? Where uh, he comes swooping in, uh, uh, bearing Fingolfin, who is holding uh, Mithros, right? And that would look cool, I think, um, and imposing. Yeah. Yeah. Um,. I think that works. That works. Um, yeah, Bree, I agree. His, um, yeah, as Bree says, visually with Morgoth, he's not a very mobile character when he's in Beleriand. Uh, his appearance is more of a metaphor at that point, so such a crazy height works there. Yeah, we're not going to normally have... I mean, remember we talked about this in Season 1. How tall are the Valar? Didn't we make them, like, no more than half again as tall as the elves? We made them not even so much. You know, obviously of a slightly different scale, but not, like, twice the height of the elves. Um, his own physical form will have changed to reflect his own warped mindset at that point. And, you know, his you know physical size there would be... Uh, uh, I, I agree, Bree, a sort of an apt projection of that concept, right? I think that that works. Okay. Um, cool. All right. I think I, I think 60 is a good... So one-third the size uh, um, 
the size uh, uh, of uh, Thorondor in the published text. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good, good. Um, okay, all right. As I said, we're not going to do casting this time. We'll do casting next time. So very good. So just a quick reminder. I'll go past our casting screen here. And just a quick reminder. Uh, next time, our next date will be Thursday, June 20th at 10 p.m. Eastern time. Um, new time, as I said. So for those of you who are uh, with us live, remember, will be many apologies to all the Europeans again who will be asleep. I'm sorry about that. This is a necessary change. Um, and... Um, and of course, the to our topic for discussion on June 20th will be episodes 7 and 8, uh, which includes the Kinslaying Reveal, Thingol's Ban, and the Spell of Bottomless Dread. Lots of fun stuff to talk about there in episodes 7 and 8. Uh, thank you so much, everybody. Um, oh, cool. And, and Halcyon worked out the scale of a mouse to a golden eagle's wingspan is a factor of about 20. Yeah, good. So uh, in order to look like a mouse in a golden eagle's wingspan... Uh, something three feet long would look like a mouse. Good. Okay, so it would look larger than a mouse if he's 60 feet. Uh, it would look like a rat. <laughs> Instead, of, it would look like a golden eagle holding a rat, which is fine, actually. Like, that would be, that would be, that's, that, that's, uh, that's, that's much better. Cool. Awesome. Um, so, thank you, everybody. I, uh, I appreciate your being with me. Sorry for the, uh, so the channel. Sorry for those of you who are listening live for messing up the link before. Um, but uh, we will see you guys next time. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed. Thank you.